Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Well, a couple of announcements before we get started this evening. First of all, Thanksgiving is <clears throat> fast approaching, and that, uh, that means just a reminder that on that Thursday night, there will not be any, any Bible class, and that is on November the 25th, and then about 10 days later on December the 3rd, there will not be, or that's when we're going to have our tree trimming and a church Christmas party. So be sure to have that on your on your calendar. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, uh, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's uh, have a few moments of silent prayer so we are, uh, everybody can make sure they're spiritually uh, prepared and ready to study the word, and uh, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for your word because it reveals so much to us, and as the more we study your word, the more we realize there is to study. The deeper we go into your word, the uh, more we realize we can never, never really reach the bottom, and there's just so much to study, so much to learn, so much to put together, and Father, as we do that, God the Holy Spirit uses that to produce in our lives spiritual growth and spiritual maturity. He is the uh, power that enables us to understand, apply, and to grow. Now, Father, as we study tonight, we pray that we can once again come to a greater understanding of your word and your plan, your purposes, and the structure of authority that you've established for the foundation of the church. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. One of the major things we're going to cover as we go through Acts, is just uh, developing as we go through the historical development in Acts is a biblical eschatology. Now, I'm using the word biblical there not, in an ad, not as an adjective that is in contrast to non-biblical. Uh, often uh, in seminaries today, uh, you will hear people talk about a biblical theology. What they mean by that is not contrasting it with a non-biblical theology, but the term biblical theology is a, um, is a technical term for developing uh, theology book by book uh, as it's developed in terms of progressive revelation through the Bible. Some of you are going, well, I never heard it that way. Well, don't worry about it. I don't know why they came up with the term that way. That's just what they call it. 
And so in the book of Acts, we see in Acts 1, no church. It's never existed before, never uh, never seen it anywhere. Nobody even expects what's getting ready to happen to happen. And then the second chapter, we have the uh, coming, the outpouring of God the Holy Spirit, which is a general term for the filling and dwelling baptism ministries of God the Holy Spirit. They're unique and distinct for this age. And that gives birth to this new organism called the church, the bride of Christ, composed of all those who believe in Jesus uh, for salvation during this age. And so the church is, that term the church is used in two senses, the universal church, which means uh, all believers throughout all time make up the body of Christ, the, the church, capital C, church universal, and then we have the local church. And each local church, like West Houston Bible Church, is a manifestation of the, of the universal church of the Lord Jesus Christ. So when we start off in Acts chapter 1, there's no church. When we end up in Acts chapter 28, there are local churches scattered throughout uh, the country surrounding the Mediterranean and even beyond. And in terms of the church universal, the church has expanded to uh, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of believers by, within those those 30 years. And as the church begins, there's no, uh, and, and especially in terms of local churches, there's no organization, there's no authority structure. All of a sudden, from one day, there's nothing, to the next day, there's uh, a little over 3,000 believers, and within a couple of weeks, you have probably over ten or 12,000, and all of a sudden, you're met with all of these organizational, administrative uh, challenges to uh, train, teach, uh, mature, minister to thousands of people. What a what a tremendous uh, challenge that was for the the apostles. And any organization functions on the basis of authority, and the authority that God laid down, that's the foundational authority for the church, is the apostles. And so we are first introduced to them in the book of Acts. They are not first on the scene, but in the first we see of them in the book of Acts is in Acts chapter 1, verse 2. Last time we started uh, with just the first two verses of Acts where we were introduced to the uh, original recipient of the account, uh, Theophilus, and an indication that this is written by the same person who wrote the third gospel, the gospel of Luke. Uh, so Luke writes the former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach. So the focal point is on Jesus' ministry, the wor- works of Jesus and his teaching, the words of Jesus, what he, what he instructed his followers. So it begins with all that Jesus began both to do and to teach from the beginning of his ministry until the day in which he was taken up, that is, the ascension. After he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles, indicating that uh, his giving these commandments to the apostles um, uh, uh, occurred prior to his ascension. So he gives his parting mandates uh, to the apostles whom he had chosen. Key phrase there, Jesus is the one who chose the original 12. So I stopped last time to pause on this word apostle to develop out from the scripture 
the doctrine of apostleship. This is going to be foundational to some things that are going to happen in chapter 1, but also once we get into uh, Acts chapter 2 and we learn that after you have this explosion of, of converts in the first uh, first day of, uh, of the church age, which was the day of Pentecost, that everyone continued to meet and they were devoted. That means they made it a priority. They were devoted to the teaching of the apostles. Why the apostles? What's significant about the apostles and what do we learn subsequently in the New Testament about the role and foundation of the apostles? It's interesting, I think, at least to me, that uh, a few years ago, I mean, it's interesting on a number of different levels, but uh, a number of years ago, one of these uh, position books comes out. You may not be familiar with these, but they'll, they, it's been very popular the last 20 years to write books uh, called Four Views on Et- uh, Eternal Condemnation or Four Views on Eternal Security or Four Views on uh, the Millennium or Four Views on whatever, and have scholars representing four different theological positions write a uh, explanation of their view, and then um, then they'll write responses and critiques of the other positions. And it helps. These are good for academics and seminary students to learn the strengths and weaknesses of different uh, of um, different positions. So one came out several years ago called Four Views or Three Views on Tongues. What was interesting is the one person in the group, I think there were actually four, four views on, on the gift of tongues, that the person who argued that they had ceased didn't even mention the 1 Corinthians 13 passage. His whole argument was based on the fact that that, um, that re- tongues were revelatory, revelation ceased because the only control factor on revelation were the apostles. And since the apostles were a foundational uh, office and foundational gift. Once the apostles went off the scene, you don't no longer had a control verification uh, system for revelation. Therefore, tongues and other revelatory gifts would have ceased. I found that to be a rather interesting argument, um, but he does hit on an important point, and that is that there was something unique and distinct about the presence of the apostles on the earth that once they passed off the scene, then uh, the church really had reached a stage of, of maturity because there would no longer be uh, any more revelation from God, any more special revelation from God, and because there would no longer be a, a body of uh, individuals with the authority to determine uh, the truth or error of that revelation. And so that so what we see here is from the very beginning, there is the establishment of an authority structure within the local church. So let's just start off in our study of the doctrine of apostleship by defining, defining the term. The term apostolos is the, the Greek noun. Uh, apostolos is not used in the sense it's used in the scripture in external literature. That is, in terms of classical Greek literature, the word originally was was used of a ship, of a ship that was sent on a mission. And then it came to be applied to the commander of the 
uh, vessel or it was applied to a commander of a naval uh, of, 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 of a naval group or it was applied to the governor of a colony. The one thing all of these things had had uh, in common was that something or someone was given a mission. They were given a task to perform, and that's and they were sent on that task. In the New Testament, the word takes on a, a unique and particularly distinct uh, meaning in that it refers to a man that is officially commissioned by an authorizing agent related to the church and then given the authority to perform the task. The, what's inherent in the word apostle as opposed to disciple is the sense of authority, that he, an apostle is someone who is given the authority to act as a representative for somebody else. And that comes out of a New Testament, I mean, of an Old Testament background with the Hebrew word shliach, meaning someone who is sent. And so, as I've pointed out many, many times, uh, for those of you who um, uh, need to hear this, is that the background for understanding New Testament Greek vocabulary isn't classical Greek usage. It is Old Testament Hebrew usage. And, it, and we only get a, only can understand a few shades of, of meanings or nuances from uh, historical Greek usage. The key is to understand how these ideas were communicated in the Old Testament, Old Testament vocabulary. So in the Old Testament, the word shaliach represented someone who had authority to act as a representative of someone else. They were a proxy. They were somebody you sent to do a task, and they were sent with the full authority to re- represent the person uh, who sent them. So that's the basic idea, someone sent on a mission to perform a task. That's the main idea. Now, within that, you have three different uses, technical uses, of the word apostle in the New Testament. The first is a designation of the original 12 as they were sent out by the Lord Jesus Christ to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Now, even though it involved 11 of the same people, the the 12 that we end up with in Acts, and they're called the 12 even when there's only 10 or 11, so that's another thing we'll have to focus on a little bit, uh, that just became the name of the team, so to speak, as they're called the 12. didn't matter how many there were, they were called the 12. But they are sent, the, the 12 that you have after the day of Pentecost, even though they're called apostles, they're not the same as the pre-Pentecost apostles. And I'll make that clear as we look at this. So let's just look at the uh, background of a couple of verses here. Luke 6:13 When it was day he that is Jesus called his disciples to himself and from them he chose 12 whom he named he also named apostles Now a disciple is a Greek word mathetes and it means a learner a student someone who is uh, sitting in a classroom situation or someone who puts themselves uh, as as a uh, apprentice uh, to be mentored by a, a teacher, leader, someone of that nature. So that's a disciple. A disciple, if you think about it, students don't have any authority. They just get the brunt of it. They're just told what to read, what to write, uh, how long they need to study, but they don't have any authority whatsoever. So the, the disciple, and there were many disciples. Anybody who was following Jesus 
was a disciple. There were even some who were called disciples because they were listening, they were students, but they weren't, they weren't even believers yet. So disciple is not a term that equals a believer. Disciple is a generic term for a student. And then Jesus also used the word disciple in a additional sense of those who were believers and were committed students. You know, not the D minus students, but the ones that were, or at least wanted to be A, B, or C plus students. Okay, they wanted to go somewhere with their spiritual life. But he takes of this group, broad group of followers, students who were listening to him, he chose 12, and these he now calls apostles. They are sent ones. He's commissioning them. They are sent on a task, and it's important to understand what is the task on which they're sent. Okay? Those are the three parts. Think of it as a formula. You've got a person who's a person or an entity or an organization that is commissioning them or sending them on a, on a mission. Then you have, uh, then you have the, the, the fact that they're sent. And then you have the mission they're sent on. Now what we'll see is that what's important about distinguishing these, these three categories of apostles in the New Testament is in two cases they're sent by Jesus. In one case they're just sent by a local church. They're all sent on a mission. But the mission, that third part, differs. Jesus sends the apostles in the Gospels pre-Pentecost to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And he gives them specific commandments that are unique to that time period and don't carry on to later missions. So the 12 that he originally chooses are, are, are chosen to, to take the message, the good news of the gospel of the kingdom to the Jews. It's not a spiritual gift. It's not a church age office. It is dispensationally prior to the church age apostle. In Matthew 10.2, he names the 12 apostles. We have a list there. And then in verse 5, 10, 2, 3, and 4, list all the, list the 12. Then in verse 5, we learn, These 12 Jesus sent out and commanded them, Do not go into the way of the Gentiles, and do not enter a city of the Samaritans. So they are, you know, that's not the mission of the church. That's the mission of these apostles prior to the crucifixion. Their mission, their message is the same one that Jesus had, Matthew 4, 23 and 24. Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. And that's what he sent the disciples to do. So I want you to turn with me. I want to spend some time on this and go through the key passage here, and that is in Matthew chapter 10. So go ahead and turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 10. So the first category is this designation of the apostles as the, the original 12 who were sent to the house of Israel and the house of Judah only. 
And that now I've already alluded to what the other two are going to be, but we won't look at them in detail until we finish up with this. I want you to look at this original mission because this is not the mission that Jesus gives the twelve after the ascension. After the ascension, everything changes. Now in Matthew chapter 10 we read, starting the first verse, when he called his twelve disciples to him, he gave them power over unclean spirits, that's demons, to cast them out, to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease. Now, that is not normative for an Old Testament believer. It's not normative for a disciple. It wasn't normative, and after the Pentecost, it wasn't normative for anybody other than the Twelve, the, the, the Apostles. For the same basic reason, it provides validation for the message. They don't heal everyone. They don't cast out every demon. They didn't go into the cancer wards of the day. They didn't go to the hospitals of the day and walk down the aisles and heal everybody. When Jesus went to the pool at Bethesda, and that John tells that story in John chapter 6, and there's the lame man who's been crippled who's waiting for allegedly the angel would come and stir the waters, and the first one who hit the waters after the, the angel stirred the waters would be healed. And so this guy never can quite get up and get there fast enough. And when Jesus came down to the pool of Bethesda, there, there were more than one, uh, there was more than one crippled individual, more than one sick person around the pool of Bethesda, but he didn't heal them all. He had a targeted mission. And that was to heal that one individual because of the, the significant role he would play in terms of being a witness or a testimony to who Jesus was. So people, in, especially in the charismatic camp, get this mis- they, they completely distort the whole ministry of, of healing and exorcism, all, and not exorcism, but casting out demons that Jesus and the disciples had because um, they don't understand that these were signs that would be performed by the Messiah. And so these are validating his claims to be the Messiah and those whom he is sending out as his proxies, as his representatives, are going to perform the same signs that he would perform because they are operating in his place as his surrogates, as it were, out among the people. So in Matthew 10, he gives them, 10-1, he gives them these, this power. And then in 2 and 3, we have the list of the names of the, uh, of the 12, including Judas Iscariot. Now we know Judas wasn't a believer. He wasn't ever a believer. When you get into John chapter 13 and Jesus casts him out, he makes the point that all were clean except one. And the phrase all were clean was a phrase that referred to, uh, referred to believers. The one who wasn't clean was Judas Iscariot. And also Judas Iscariot is said to have, uh, that Satan entered into him, and the Greek word there is ace erkomai, which means to go into somebody, and is always a word that's used to describe demon possession, that a demon enters into somebody and takes control of their, uh, of their body. Uh, it's not demon influence, which is where the demon has some sort of influence on the individual from an external vantage point. Acercomai indicates it's internal. And then what, what's the solution? 
Jesus casts the demon out. He doesn't exercise a demon. The only the magical priest uh, exorc- did exorcism. The word that Jesus and the disciple that's applied to Jesus and the disciples is always the word ekbalo, meaning to cast out. So you have this terminology into and out of, and that defines what demon uh, demon possession is. So G- Judas isn't even demon possessed; he is Satan possessed. Satan entered into him. And that can only happen to someone who is an unbeliever. So Judas was clearly an unbeliever, but he performs all the same miracles that that uh, Peter and James and John and Thaddeus and, and Simon, all the others performed. And so when Jesus said, one of you will betray me, they didn't all go, God, it must be Judas. Look, he's got that shifty look in his eye. He never had the right works anyway. We just suspected he didn't accept the lordship of Jesus. You know, they didn't say anything like that. As far as they were concerned, Peter looks at Jesus and says, is it me? You know, there's, that's the self-absorbed arrogance showing up there. We're all guilty. You know, is that going to be me? No, they, the last person they were to think of was, was Judas. But Judas went out on the mission, and he's empowered. And that's just the grace of God in... in uh, and making sure the mission is carried out. Uh, Judas is doing all the same thing that everybody else is doing. You couldn't tell that he, was, uh, he wasn't saved by his external uh, works. Now in verse 5 we read, These twelve Jesus sent out, and there the verb is apostello. Apostolos is the noun, apostello is the verb, which means to send out, and as the verb moved over, uh, as a noun, it became uh, more and more technical until we reach this technical meeting in the New Testament. These twelve Jesus sent out and commanded them, saying, Do not go into the way of the Gentiles, and do not go enter a city of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and as you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. That is the same message that Jesus was preaching when he began in Matthew chapter 4, and it's the same message that John the Baptist was starting off with, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So their mission is only to Israel, and their mission is oriented to announcing the uh, approaching kingdom if they would prepare for it and accept it. So they are... um, they are to announce that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, that it's near, it is imminent. And then they are given their marching orders. They are to heal the sick. They are to cleanse the lepers. They are to raise the dead, cast out demons. And, and he says, freely you have received, freely give. Now, these signs were distinct signs of the presence of the Messiah. In the Old Testament... Uh, it was clear that this was what would be expected of the of the Messiah, that he would come and he would heal, and he would heal the lame and give sight to the blind. Um, and the rabbis believed that only when the dead were raised and the blind were given sight would you know for sure that the Messiah was there. Now in verse 9, let me see, let me skip ahead here. In verse 9, they're told that they aren't supposed to take a lot with them on their mission. Jesus said, Provide neither gold nor silver nor copper in your money belts, nor bag for your journey, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor staffs, 
for a worker is worthy of his food. Now, I've always thought this is one of those great commands from the Lord that shows that everybody today is really a, 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 a secret dispensationalist. Because you don't, I don't care if you, how covenant you are, how reformed you are, I don't care how much of a Lutheran you are, I don't care how much you believe in replacement theology and how much you hate dispensationalism, you want your missionaries to have a little bit more than just what they're carrying on the back, their back and what they have in their pocket. Which shows that the plan doesn't always work according to the same commands every time. So initially, when Jesus sent them out, they're only to go to the Israelites, only to go to the Jews, and they're not supposed to take anything with them. Don't take any gold or silver or copper in your money belts. Empty your pockets, boys. You're going to go out and trust the Lord. Don't take a suitcase. You don't have to worry about taking care of going through TSA and being scanned in any of the scanners. You're not going to have anything with you. Don't even take an extra pair of clothes. Now, what is going on here? This is where background is important. Alfred Adersheim has written one of the classic books on the life of Christ, and it is called The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah. And in that, Adersheim explains this. He was uh, trained to be a rabbi. He wrote at the end of the 19th century. Uh, and he, so he brings a tremendous uh, wealth of knowledge about uh, rabbinical customs to his understanding of the Gospels. And he says the directions about not taking staff, shoes, nor money purse exactly correspond to the rabbinic injunction not to enter the temple precincts with staff, shoes, um, and a money girdle. The symbolic reasons underlying this command would in both cases be probably the same to avoid even the appearance of being engaged on other business. Even the whole being should be absorbed in the service of the Lord. So when Jesus sends them out on this mission, they're, they're operating just the same way a priest would in, in going into the temple, which just indicates this fits within the context of both Jewish thought, rabbinical thought, and operation at that time uh, of, uh, of history. This lack of preparation means that they're going to have to trust the Lord to provide for them all along the way and that God's gr- sufficient grace would take care of them. So then in terms of lodging, the Lord then directs them in verse 11. Now, whatever city or town you enter, inquire who in it is worthy. Okay, you're, you're not just looking for the wealthiest person. You just don't want to go down to, to River Oaks or Beverly Hills or whatever the uh, high-income part of town would be. You want to find those who are worthy. The idea here has to do with they are upright. They are uh, respected for their spirituality and for their relationship with the Lord. Uh, So you inquire who is worthy and stay there until you go out. And when you go into a household, you go into this house, uh, if the household is worthy, then let your peace come upon it. But if it's not, let your peace return to you. In other words, if you're if if it's worthy, then stay there, relax, enjoy uh, your 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 presence there. But if not, then leave, and 
if they reject you and reject your message, then when you depart from that house or city, shake off the dust from your feet. In other words, you're not, that's just a, a sign of showing you're not dependent upon those people for your hospitality uh, in any way, uh, shape, or form. And so if no hospitality is extended, if they're not responsive to your message, then you just move on. You don't worry about the fact that you've been rejected or the message has been rejected, the gospel has been rejected. You just move on uh, to the next village and keep going all the way through the land. And so then the Lord uh, ends in verse 15 by saying, Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Now, I'm not going to get distracted on this point, but this is one of those verses that seems to suggest that there are going to be different degrees of punishment uh, in, the, in eternity because there's different levels of revelation given to different people and different levels of rejection that are given. That's not to say they're not all in the lake of fire. It's to say everybody's in a place of eternal torments, it's just that some are going to be in a place that's a little more tormented. Uh, that is uh, based on this, this passage and a number of others that seem to suggest that there are uh, variations in, in punishment. Verse 16, Jesus says, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. This is verses 16 and 17. I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Now, both uh, the, the imagery here is is standard in in Jewish thought and in rabbinical thought. Uh, a phrase in the midrash uh, uh, relates the position of Israel among the nations, the hostile nations, uh, to a to sheep in the midst of wolves. Uh, the admonition also to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves is also a Jewish phrase that we find in the, in the uh, Midrash, which is a, uh, Jewish commentaries on the Old Testament, where Israel is described as being as harmless as the dove toward God and as wise as serpents toward the hostile Gentile nations. And so the, the metaphor that we have here, uh, the first one, that sheep in the midst of wolves, is to show that that they're going out and they're going to be in a position where they're threatened and where they are in danger. Uh, but they are to be as wise as serpents. And this was a uh, this was a parable or uh, idiom in the ancient world that they were to be wise and be aware of their circumstances but they are to be as harmless as doves. They're not to be reactive. They're not to be mean. They're not to be hostile, but they are to uh, be gentle in how they're dealing with those who are uh, antagonistic to them. So Jesus goes on to say, But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to councils and scourge you in the synagogues. Now, the word for council is the word Sanhedrin. In the in the uh, in the Greek there. So, what we have again is another comment by uh, Adersheim, which I think is a very significant comment. He says of the greatest importance to keep in view that 
At whatever period of Christ's ministry this prediction and promise were spoken, whether this is at the beginning, the middle, or near the end, and whether it was spoken only once or oftener, they refer exclusively to a Jewish state of things. Now, that's a very important observation, that this, what's being said here isn't something you can take out of context and apply it into the church age. This is talking about a unique and distinct set of circumstances occurring in Jesus' ministry when he is sending out the disciples to the, uh, to the house of Israel, and this is how they are to respond. And so when he talks about those who would be hostile to them and those who would be, who would be negative to their message, he's talking about Jew, Jews at that particular time in history. And he goes on to say, uh, in verse 18, you will be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, do not worry about how or what you should speak, for it shall be given to you in that hour what you should speak. Now, most people think of that as referring on into their uh, ministry after Pentecost. But contextually, we can't we can't see that. This has got to be Jesus talking to them in terms of their this mission that he is giving them at this time. He's not going beyond um, uh, the crucifixion at this point. He's not looking down the road. He is talking to them about what they could experience in this particular uh, mission. And he says, for it's not for you who, you who speak, but the spirit of your father who speaks in you. Uh, now, brother will deliver a brother to death, and father his child, and children rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death, and all will be hated for my sake, but he who endures to the end will be saved. Now, that's a, another important passage there. The same phrase is found in Matthew 24. Now, he, now, at this point, he does go beyond what they're going to experience in their lifetime in terms of the hostile reaction. But this is to be understood not in terms of, not in terms of the church age, but we're still talking about the message that, he's, that they're offering is that the kingdom's about to come. And when, on basis on just on Old Testament uh, uh, prophecy, if the kingdom, if they did accept the kingdom, then these things would have all, the tribulation would have occurred at, somehow at this time as well, uh, because all of those things would have had to have taken place. And then those who endure to the end, that same phrase is found in Matthew 24 related to enduring to the end of the tribulation period will be saved isn't soteriological justification. It is deliverance from uh, the persecution that takes place. So Matthew chapter 10 then goes, is, describes the mission of the, of the 12 apostles to Israel. So this isn't, this isn't church age, but neither is it a, just a general use of the word apostle. They are apostles to Israel. That's their mission. And they're sent by the Lord Jesus Christ. Because of the rejection that occurs, because Israel rejects their message and turns against them, then what happens is you get a new dimension to a, a, a apostleship, which is the second meaning of apostle, which is the spiritual gift in office that occurs in the New Testament. This is all under 
point number two, which was the three types of apostles. The first is Jesus sends the twelve to the house of Israel before the crucifixion. And then this refers to the spiritual gift of apostleship related to the twelve after the day of, uh, after the day of Pentecost. This is distinct. There's no spiritual gift before Acts 2. It's foundational to understand that. No spiritual gift before Acts 2. They had teachers before Acts 2. You had other things. Some of these things, people were administrators before Acts 2. You had healing that took place uh, before Acts 2. But they weren't spiritual, church-age spiritual gifts. So in 1 Corinthians 12, 28 and 29, we read, God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, gifts of healings, helps, administration, various kinds of tongues. So this is the 1 Corinthians 12 is a passage that deals one of the three key passages dealing with spiritual gifts. So God is the one who... Uh, distributes the gifts, but it's actually done, the distribution's done through the Holy Spirit and under the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. We know this because in Galatians 1.1, the Apostle Paul introduces himself as Paul, an apostle, and then he says, not sent from men, not, not from men, where he uses the uh, Greek preposition apa, which indicates the ultimate source, not sent from the ultimate source of men. He sent from the ultimate source of the Lord Jesus Christ, nor through the agency of men, of, of man, but that is mankind, a human agency, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. So God the Father is the ultimate authority, but the administration of the, of the apostleship is through Jesus Christ who chooses the twelve. Okay, so that's the second gift. The third, I mean, second uses of apostle. The third use of apostle, the third use of apostle is going to refer to people like Barnabas, Junius, uh, Andronicus, uh, that are mentioned as apostles, but it's a lowercase a. They're sent by a local church. That's who commissions them. And, for example, the church at Antioch sent Paul and Barnabas to take the gospel out to the Gentiles. Now, in that sense, Paul and Barnabas are both said to be apostles, but it's using the word apostle to describe both of them, so it's using the word apostle in a different sense than uh, the use of apostle, capital A, as Paul uses it in the introduction to his epistles. Okay, three uses, limited use, apostle to the Jews before the crucifixion, the apostolic, I mean the spiritual gift of the leadership and the foundation of the church after Pentecost and those who were sent on temporary uh, missions by local churches or or individuals because Paul also uses the verb is used where he sends such as so-and-so on a mission. Now, we know that there's that distinction between the second category and the third category because of qualifications that are set forth. This is the third point. What qualified a person to be an, an apostle, uppercase apostle, as a uh, foundation in the local church? 
First of all, they're gifted by God, the Holy Spirit, which is a passage I just uh, referred to in 1 Corinthians 12, 28 and 29, as well as earlier in the chapter, uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 8 through 11. Second, they were an, to be an eyewitness of the resurrection or and have seen the resurrected Christ in 1 Corinthians 15, 8 through 9, and as well as Acts 1, uh, 22. In Acts 1, 22, we read, beginning with the baptism of John, this is when... Um, this is when Peter is talking about the qualification for someone to replace Judas. And we'll get into that whole issue of whether or not he was making a mistake there or not. Beginning with the baptism of John till the day that he was taken up from us, one of these should become a witness with us of his resurrection. And then third, the, the sign of an apostle was that they performed signs and wonders. They were endued with miraculous powers. This is uh, seen... Illustrated Acts 5:15, Acts 16:16 16, 16 through 18, uh, Acts 19:11 to 12. But 2 Corinthians 12:12 12, 12, 12 specifically states the signs of the uh, the apostle are miracles and signs and wonders. So that validates them. Everyone who had the office of apostle in the church and the spiritual gift had the ability to perform signs and wonders and miracles and and healing. Okay, that's the third point, the qualifications uh, for the apostle. Here's a couple of other verses related to signs and wonders. Acts 2.43, on the day of Pentecost, everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. Acts 5.12, at the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's portico, and then 2 Corinthians 12, 12, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. Okay, now the fourth point. The fourth point is church age apostleship does not begin until the day of Pentecost. It doesn't begin until after the ascension of Christ, 10 days after his ascension, at the day of Pentecost. So, so all, every time the twelve are referred to as apostles in the Gospels, it's not referring to them in terms of a spiritual gift or a mission to the Gentiles, which, is, which distinguishes the church age uh, office. Ephesians 4, 8 through 11 makes it clear that this is a gift given by the Lord Jesus Christ to the church. The fifth point, and this is one that always gets people, uh, gets people into a lively discussion. Fifth point is that the church age apostolate, the church age apostolate is apparently limited to twelve. That's why we have to we have to go back and say, okay, when the, uh, the New Testament t- starts talking about Junius and Andronicus and Barnabas as apostles, wait a minute. The, the, obviously, it's using the word differently because when we come to Revelation twenty one twelve, the wall of the city had twelve foundations. That's the New Jerusalem. The wall of the city had twelve foundations, and upon them, the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. It's interesting. I don't care how good the writer is. I've got some of the best recent commentaries on Revelation. 
nobody tackles this. They'll say, well, we don't know whether this is going to be Matthias or Judas or Paul. Everybody bails out on this. It's a hotly debated issue. But there's only 12, so who? Are, I think we can know with certainty who those 12 are. There's only going to be 12 names there. That means Judas isn't there because he's an unbeliever. So it's going to be Matthias. It's going to be uh, or Paul, one or the other. And we're going to have to wait until we get towards the end of the chapter before you get the answer to that question. That's that's the hook. So that they're a foundation, and it, the, the reason these the, the foundation for the church is because of the role of the of the apostles in uh, the structure of the church. Ephesians chapter uh, two verse twenty, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ Himself being the chief cornerstone. So the church is, and the apostles and prophets. This isn't Old Testament prophets; it's New Testament prophets. So, fifth point, the church age apostolate is apparently limited to 12. Sixth point, the apostles were recipients of direct revelation from God and were the only authorized source for revelation. Now, I mean that, and let me clarify that, because you had some others who were associated, close associates with the apostles who also, like Luke, writes scripture. But Luke is, Luke is associated with Paul. Mark writes scripture. Mark is not one of the apostles, but he is, he's writing Peter's account, basically, of the gospel. The gospel of Mark is basically Peter's, uh, Peter's rendition. So he's, if, if they're, a uh, writer of scripture, if revelation is given through them, they're someone who's tightly connected uh, with an apostle who's the control factor uh, for revelation. Once the last apostle disappeared, there's no more revelation because there's no longer a quality control team. Somebody comes along today and says, you know, I'm an apostle. You know one thing. They're either extremely old or they're a liar. One of the two. No other option. Ephesians 2.20, the foundations, the apostles and prophets, and uh, Ephesians 3.5, in other ages, was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. Church age. So that's the control, control feature, is the, uh, uh, the group of apostles, the twelve. Now, the seventh point is who were, who were the disciples? Well, we have the eleven. We have their list given in the Gospels. But what about the others? Who fills in the gap? Who's the twelfth? Is it Barnabas, Junius, Andronicus, Matthias? I don't think it's Matthias because this whole episode in Acts 1 is pre-Pentecost. They cast lots, They're not a, which is an Old Testament style of revelation. It's, there's a dispensational change that doesn't occur until Acts 2. So when you have criticism made of the selection of Matthias in Acts 1, it's assuming that Peter is choosing Matthias to be a church-age office holder, who has the spiritual gift of apostle. 
But that doesn't happen till the next chapter. Peter's still thinking in terms of apostle in the first meeting when he's selecting Matthias. He's just replacing Judas, and he's thinking in terms of what their mission has been from Matthew 10 to Acts 1. He's not thinking about what their mission is going to be from Acts 2 on because he still doesn't have a clue that spiritual gifts are coming and what that what all of that is going to entail. So he's thinking backward, and he's just replacing, and he brings a good argument. We'll get into all of that when we get there. So I, I'm, I don't think it's Matthias. I'm giving it away now. I think it's going to be the Apostle Paul. Eight. The spiritual gift of apostle died in the first generation. There's no provision for successors. There's no apostolic succession. Now, when that word and that concept first started in the early church, it wasn't a succession of people, which is what you have now exhibited in the Roman Catholic Church and in the Roman Catholic light version, otherwise known as Anglicanism, uh, what you in that in those two systems you have what's called an episcopal form of government, where apostolic succession is from one person to another. In the early church, it was a succession of doctrine. When you have the laying on of hands, which most of you have witnessed in an ordination ceremony or when you're sending out a missionary, the act the symbolism there is that when the pastors or the deacons or whoever the group is puts their hands on somebody, they're saying we're identifying our doctrine with their doctrine. It is a uh, it, it is the early version of the good housekeeping seal of approval, except it's the divine house. And it is showing that what they believe and what they teach is what we believe and we teach, and so we're authorizing them uh, we're authorizing them to go out. So the the um, spiritual gift is never passed on by laying on of hands. This, a spiritual gift is never determined by men. That's what Galatians one one Paul says. It's not from the ultimate source of men, or from or through mankind. It is through the Lord Jesus Christ and God the Father. Now Peter. Peter's always interesting. Peter, uh, we, early on in the church, because at the end of First Peter, he talks about being in, in uh, uh, Babylon. He really was in Babylon. He wasn't in Rome. But somewhere when allegorical interpretation came in, all of a sudden Babylon became Rome. And Peter doesn't end up in Rome until way after the Apostle Paul. And so if anybody had any, uh, uh, any claim to being the founder of the church in Rome, it would have been Paul. But Paul writes the epistle to the Romans, as we'll begin to see this coming Thursday night, uh, because the church has already been, this church in Rome had already started before Paul got there and before Peter got there. It's not founded by, uh, by as far as we know, by one of the apostles. The first time this whole doctrine of uh, apostolic secession came in was in the early uh, early fifth century, with the um, with the claim of Leo the First begins in order to sustain. He was the bishop of Rome in order to kind of build himself up and to give him a position of respectability. So what we have here at the beginning of Acts one is a reference to the twelve that Jesus chose to go out to the house of Israel and to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom.
These are the apostles that he chose. What we learned there in the last phrase is the Lord Jesus Christ, because he's the head of the church, is the one who chooses the apostles. Now, next time, excuse me, next time we'll come back to verse 3. And talking about to whom, that is to these apostles, he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs. Now, that's an extremely important phrase that we need to uh, zero in on. And then the second part of that verse is also uh, very tantalizing, very important, because during the 40 days he teaches them many things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And so we have to start uh, focusing on uh, what that means. Now, that's something that we're going to see all the way through Acts. We're going to come back. We're going to add. We're going to review apostleship a couple more times before we get out of the first chapter. Uh, we're going to... Uh, really have to zero in on what is meant by the kingdom of God and um, and then the role of the Holy Spirit. All these things are connected and very important for understanding uh, what's going on in the book of Acts and also important for why a lot is misunderstood. So we'll uh, come back to verse 3 and the importance of apologetics next time. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word this evening and to see how from the beginning you had a plan and you establish an authority structure within the church, the foundation built on those who would validate, authenticate, certify revelation, meaning the council of the apostles, and that the entire edifice of the church, the body of Christ, has been built upon that edifice. And so we, like the first century church, are to be devoted to the teaching of the apostles. And we pray that that would be true of us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.